Well, I greet you once more in the worthy name of Jesus. It's been a blessing to be with you this weekend. Thank you for allowing me to come and share. I have to admit, it is rather intimidating to speak on a subject such as this. I was sitting in Sunday school this morning, and you know, it was my peers, people I've grown up with, many of them older than me. And many of, you know, I talked to grandparents that you've been through this. Um, you, you have so much more wisdom than I do, so much more experience than I do, and, and yet you've been so kind, so gracious. Um, I've tried to stay close to God's word and allow God's word to speak, and that way you won't blame me. You have to blame the word of God. And I trust that God's word has challenged you this weekend as it has challenged me because I have been challenged as we have looked into the Word of God. I have so far to, to come in terms of my fear of God and maintaining a singular love and focus on God. And now this evening, a very practical message, homes that teach God. Now I want to begin by hanging something up here. probably aren't going to be able to see this in the back, but you'll know what it is. That is three pictures that are very dear to me. We'll talk about them later. The first two messages this weekend have been very foundational messages. I've tried to share them in the context of our homes. But the reality is, a proper fear of God and a singular focus on God, these are foundational subjects for any area of life. These are foundational subjects if you're going to relate to your neighbors in a way that, that brings glory to God. And if you're going to use your smartphone in a way that honors God. And if you're going to run your business in a way that honors God. And if you're going to take vacations that honor God, and, and handle your finances in a way that honors God. These are foundational subjects for all of life as Christians. And I think most of you here this evening heard those messages. I'm not going to repeat them, but I want you to remember, and, and like I said the first evening, these three messages tie together so well. A proper fear of God is imperative if we are going to live lives that exalt his holy character. And the more you know and understand God, the more you are going to fear and reverence him. And the more you fear and reverence him, the more your focus will stay on him. The more you will love him. The more you focus on him, the more you will teach and train your children to follow after him. And so these messages just tie together so beautifully. So the title of the message this evening, Homes That Teach God. And I want to begin with one verse in the New Testament that gives us, as parents, the mandate to teach and to nurture our children. A very familiar verse, Ephesians 6 verse 4, says this, And ye fathers, 
Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now whose responsibility does that verse say it is to teach and to nurture our children? The churches? The schools? It's the parents. And more specifically in this verse, it's the fathers. Now the church and the school play a vital role in nurturing our children. And Brother Dave alluded to that in his devotional. But ultimately, it's the parents' responsibility. Fathers, you are responsible to make sure your child is is being brought up to know God, to understand God, to follow God, to know what God requires, to know who God is. And mothers as well, you play a tremendous role in bringing your children up, teaching them the ways of God. We can't expect someone else to do it. It's not someone else's responsibility. Praise God for the church. Praise God for our schools. Praise God for Sunday school. But the bulk of the responsibility lies with us as parents to teach God to our children. And I just want to say this. The church of God today is in desperate needs of dedicated dads. Dedicated to God, dedicated to their wife, dedicated to their children, dedicated to the local church, dedicated to the kingdom of God. And I I say this to you as a fellow dad who is in the thick of it. It's time to stop playing games and rise up and be the man that God has called us to be. We have one opportunity, and it's, it's been a challenge as I've, as I've talked, especially to some of you older ones. One opportunity to raise our families for God. Let's be the men that God has called us to be. Now, there are, thinking of homes that teach God, there are basic principles that we could lay out for raising children that are respectable citizens. Okay, things like don't, don't favor one child over another. Be consistent with your discipline. Don't get angry at your children. These are all things that are good. And and the reality is many of these principles apply to you, whether you're a Mennonite or whether you're a Baptist or even whether you're a Muslim or an atheist. They apply to you. But I want to remind you this evening, we're not just trying to raise respectable citizens. We're trying to raise warriors for the kingdom of God. Let's set our sights higher than just having children that behave well in public. I remember probably about 10 years ago, I had a little girl that was very strong-willed. And I remember one evening at Pike, after the service, I was talking to dear brother Fred Miller, And he told me this, he said, everything you need for raising your children is in this book. You believe that? And he was telling me, don't don't try to go to all the other books and, and seminars to figure out how to raise your children. Everything you need to know to raise your children is in this book. So let's open this book this evening and see what it says. Turn, first of all, to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, and we're going to be going back to Deuteronomy 6 
this evening, but I want to begin in this. We've been looking primarily this weekend at the children of Israel, and I want to continue this, that this evening. And in this psalm, the psalmist is recounting the journey of the children of Israel. It's a very long psalm. In most of the psalm, he talks about what God did for Israel. He's recounting what, what God did for Israel. But I want to read verses 1 through 8 of this psalm. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generations to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. So in this psalm, the, the, the writer has a very exciting story that he wants to tell. And verse 3 shows us that this story is a story that was passed on to him. His father had told him this story. It's a story about God. It's a story about God's mighty strength. It's a story about his wonderful works that he has done. It's a story about God calling out a people and setting them apart to himself. It's a story of redemption. It's the story of the gospel. And it seems that the heart cry of this passage is that this story, this message of the gospel would be passed on from generation to generation. Now, now you may be thinking, this, this isn't the gospel, this is the story of Israel. But, but it is the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is... And that's what this psalm is talking about. It's a psalm of redemption, of God delivering his people, God saving his people, bringing them out of bondage, out of Egypt, through the desert, into the promised land. And, and again, the cry of the psalmist is, those who have seen God work, those who have seen what God can do, tell it to your children. And then your children will tell their children. And the story of redemption would be passed from generation to generation, to generation. And if this happens, the psalmist says, the result would be, verse 7, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. But if it doesn't happen, verse 8, they'll be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. 
And so parents, I ask you again this evening, have you been delivered from Egypt? Do you have a story to tell your children? Has God done a mighty work in your life? And if he has, are you passing it on to your children and to your grandchildren? And and I feel like this evening I'm I'm repeating some of what I said this morning. But again, it begins with you. It must be your story. It must be in your heart. And then you can pass it on. Now, I want to think about these pictures up here for a little bit. Why do these pictures matter? Do you care about these pictures? Now, I don't know. I'm sure you can't see them well. I assume most of you know what they are. They're they're pictures of, let's see, I believe it's the first grade class at school. Grade four and grade, grade five and six. And there's, there's different reasons why I care about these pictures. But there's three primary reasons why I care about these pictures. One is a little girl in first grade named Alexis. One is a medium-sized girl in fourth grade named Carrie. And then one is a bigger girl in, let's see, fifth grade, I believe, named Megan. You should care about these pictures, too. They're our children. They're your grandchildren. They've been entrusted to us by God. They have eternal souls. And again, I'm going I'm, I'm to repeat some of the burden I had this morning. But what if I would tell you that 18, I, th- I believe, actually I'm not sure how many children are in those pictures, but what if I would tell you that 18 of these children are going to be killed in car crashes? What would be your response? You'd be devastated, right? I, I almost can't, can't even talk about it. You'd say it can't be. We've got to do something. Eight, we're not going to lose 18 of these children in a car crash. They're too precious to us. We would take up offerings and make sure every family got a big, safe SUV. We'd have conferences on keeping your seatbelts buckled and, and driving defensively. We would never text and drive. We are not going to lose 18 of these children in a car crash. And yet there's something happening that is much worse than losing 18 of these children in a car crash. Way too many of our children are walking away from God and headed toward a Christless grave. And again, too often our response is, well, we all have to make our own decision. And we go on with life. At least they've succeeded financially. At least they have a nice family. At least they still come home to visit us. It's just the way it is. In thinking about this, 
I took a very brief and unofficial look at the graduates from Berea from about the year 2001 to 2010, something like that. There was 19, uh, I'm sorry, 95 people graduated, and it was somewhat difficult to do this without being judgmental, feeling judgmental at least. You may have came up with slightly different numbers, but this is the numbers I came up with. Of the 95 people, 66 of them are faithfully serving God. Praise the Lord. There was 11 of them that I would, I would say they are, they are serving God, but it seems that they're rejecting what we believe is historical Christianity. And then 18 of them have pretty much totally disregarded historical Christianity. And so if you do a little math, let's see, I didn't look. Oh, yeah, John Ralph's here. 11 plus 18 divided by 95 is about 30%. 30% are headed down a path that we, we would feel leads to destruction. And that's where I come up with these 18 children, 30% of them headed down a path of destruction. Now, I don't know how you feel about these numbers. They were actually better than what I was expecting. I thought it would be higher than that. And yet, it's not okay. is not okay. Is it? I hope that's not okay with you. I did some more math. I want to give you a a few numbers. Let's just think a little bit together. The impact that one couple with a faithful family, the impact that that couple could have on the church and on the world. One couple. Let's make that couple you. One family that had four godly children. And let's say that every generation, every child would have four children. Now I know here at peak that number's probably a little low. <laughs> but let's just say four children. The first generation, you would end up with, let's see, four. Four children. I guess you had the parents at six. Second generation, each of those would have four faithful children. You'd have 16, 16 faithful children. Third generation, each of them would have four children. You'd end up with 64 faithful children. Fourth generation, you would have 256 faithful children. Fifth generation, you would have 1,024 faithful children. Imagine the impact that that could have on the world. Just split them up. You've got 10 big churches just from one couple who raised a faithful family and taught their children to teach their children. It, it's exciting to think about the impact that you and I, raising a godly seed, could have on the world. But now let's change these numbers a little bit. We're still going to have four children. But three of them are going to follow Christ. One of them is going to turn away. Then what do those numbers look like? First generation, you would have three godly and one ungodly. Now, I think it's safe to assume that the one one ungodly child would probably have four ungodly children. 
So we have to figure that in when we do these equations. The second generation would have nine godly children and seven ungodly children. Third generation would have 27 godly children and 37 ungodly children. Just in three generations, the ungodly has passed the godly children. Fourth generation, we would have 81 godly and 175 81 godly, I think that's what I said, and 175 ungodly children. Fifth generation, we would have 243 godly children and 781 ungodly children. And yet we'd feel pretty good about ourselves because most of our children were faithful. And yet at the same time, we would be creating more warriors for Satan than we would for the kingdom of God. I give you these numbers just to make you think, just to make you realize the seriousness of raising a family. There's a prayer that I have prayed, and it's probably the most difficult prayer I've prayed, but I mean it with all my heart. And talking to some of you this weekend, I know you would agree with this prayer. I would rather have a child die when he's young than have a child die when he's lost. Turn now to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. I was, I have in my notes to read the first part of this. I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. But I would just reiterate this first part. It begins with you. Your relationship with God. God being everything to you. Loving him with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And then we come to verse 7. And we read this. Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. And thou shalt teach them, that them being the words of God, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, Moses tells us. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. And they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house, and on thy gates. Now, what I see in these verses is a parent who is making intentional choices that is going to subtly turn the hearts of his children to God. He's not making a big deal out of it, but he's doing these little things that his children are going to see and it's going to instill the truth of God into the minds of his children. And, and I would just reiterate, it's not necessarily a child training recipe. It's a lifestyle that flows out of the heart. What's happened in here, and it affects what I put on the wall and and what I put on the post and what I put on my, well, on my forehead, between my eyes. Maybe that doesn't apply to us. It did then. But the things we talk about, the things we, the the, the music we play, the the clothes we wear, our associations, all these things, Pointing our children to God, not making a big deal out of it, 
and yet pointing them to God. Different places in the Old Testament, Israel was told, make a pile of stones here. Now, what good is a pile of stones? Well, it gets your children asking questions. What are these stones for? Sit down, son. Let me tell you what God did there at the Jordan River. Let me tell you what God did in this situation. It's creating opportunities to point our children to God. These intentional choices are shaping the character of our children. They're forming the values of our child. They're helping to create our children's heroes. They're cultivating a vision for your child. They're creating goals and dreams in the hearts of your child. They're instilling life lessons into your children. I once heard a teacher talking about, I believe it was something they heard at a teacher's week, about putting things on your walls and and even on the ceilings so that when a child is daydreaming, just starting to look around, guess what? They're trapped. They're learning. They don't have a choice. Go to John Ralph's room. What does he have on his bulletin board? Pictures of big bucks? (laughs) No. It's mathematical equations. You can't get away from it. You start looking around and you just keep learning, whether you like it or not. And that's what this is saying. Surround your child with things that point them to God and cause them to ask questions. And then, when your child does ask you about these things, jump to verse 20, and when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, what mean these testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, it's just one of those things, son. No. Then shalt thou say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out. Brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Here's what he did for us. Here's how he brought us through the wilderness. He took us through the Red Sea. He brought water out of a rock. He gave us manna. Tell of God's faithfulness. Use the opportunity to point your child to Jesus. Now, I want to just suggest to you two very practical things that you could implement in your home to do this. Now, there's many things. You know, the, the, mod, the mottos you put on your wall, the, the, the music you play in your home, the, the people you associate with, and many other things. There, there's many, the, the stories you read to your children. All those things point your children to Jesus. But Isaiah 28, verse 9 and 10, says this, Whom shall we teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Now that's a question. Who who should we teach these things? The answer is this, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. Now that's a pretty young child. So start young. That's that's the first key. And then here's here's the, the concept here. Verse 10, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Just a little bit at a time. This this always impresses me when, when you get a first grader and they start coming home and they've learned a new concept or they've learned a new sound and the next day another one and the next day another one. And at the end of nine months, they're reading pretty amazing. That's the way we teach our children. So one thing you could do 
And both of these things, I just have to admit up front, I've fallen behind on these things. I haven't done them like I should. I did them for a time, and then I've kind of quit. But you could start. I can, I can start again. One is Bible memory. I want you to think about this. If you and your children would begin today, and you would memorize one verse a week, that shouldn't be too hard, one verse a week, in just over two years, you could have memorized the entire Sermon on the Mount. Two years, one verse a week. Or maybe you get ambitious and you say, I want, to, I want to do two verses a week. In four years, you could have the book of Romans memorized. Would that impact your child? Probably would. And not only would you be hiding the word of God in their hearts, but you would be teaching them a discipline that they would take with them for the rest of their life. Another suggestion. How many of you have used or heard of a catechism? You familiar with those? A couple of the ones that aren't as young. A catechism is a series of questions and answers that help to teach truth. So the one I have is a catechism for young children. It has 138 questions, beginning with things like, who made you? And the child says, God made me. And then you say, what else did God make? And the child says, God made all things. And it just goes on and on, building on itself, until the final question is, what is heaven? Now, if you started doing this with your child when they turned three, and you memorized one question and answer a week, your child would know a working definition of justification, sanctification, regeneration. They would know the Ten Commandments. They would know the three offices of Christ. They would know about baptism, communion, and many more things about the gospel before they enter first grade. Would that be all right, John Ralph? <laughs> okay, maybe that's kind of a, a high goal, but let's set our sights high. By the way, I put a stack of these on the table. You're welcome to take, take one, or however many you want, and use them with your children. I would encourage you to. Now, as I, as I prepared this message, I, I struggled a lot knowing how to put all my thoughts together. There was a lot of things I wanted to touch on, and they didn't all tie together real good. But um, please just stay with me. The, the next thing I want to talk about are, is our children's heroes. And I, I mentioned this just briefly. I believe that these things we do, these choices we make, start to instill in the mind of, or, or start to create heroes for our children. The stories we read them, the places we take them, the people we talk about, the people we idolize, we create heroes for our children. And like it or not, not your children's heroes will help to shape their values. And your children's values will help, will determine the decisions that they make in life. And the decisions they make in life will ultimately determine their destiny. Does it matter who your children's heroes are? 
It does. It matters who your children's heroes are. Now, let's just play a little game together. I don't want you to answer audibly. It may embarrass someone. But just think about this. Who would you rather your child... Who would you rather have for your child's hero? LeBron James or Jay Rohr? Michael Waddell or Samuel Gehring? Donald Trump or Dave Miller? All right, those were pretty easy. Let's get a little more difficult. Well, I'll put the Redskins. I'm not sure. I don't think there's such a thing anymore. But the Redskins are the Southeastern Conference. Dude Perfect or the Executive Committee? That should be easy. The Hardy Boys or the Minor Prophets? Now, I'm sure I know the answers that you would give if this was a test. But if I would come into your home and I would sit around your supper table and I would listen to your conversations and I would watch what goes across the screen of your computer or your phone and I would listen to the music you play, who are you idolizing? How do you respond to decisions that the church makes that you don't like? Do you cheer for your team and criticize your ministry? Do you excitedly read the sports page and fall asleep reading your Bible? Who are your children's heroes? Parents, we play a role in forming the heroes of our children, and it matters. It matters greatly. Think how it would change the atmosphere in our schools and in our homes if our children would idolize the men and women who have dedicated their lives to building the kingdom of God. They would think the world and all of men who are looking out for our souls. Think how that would change the atmosphere at school and at church and at conference and across the board. If that's the people our children would look up to and idolize. Another thing I want to touch on this evening, very foundational. I thought about putting it first. I moved it down to here. And that is that we must have the hearts of our children. Now, this is a phrase that I hear fairly often, you need to have the heart of your child. And, and I've wondered sometimes, what does that mean? And how, how do you get it? And there are many books written and many seminars given on how to win the heart of your child. Do you realize that some people think that the way to get your child's heart is to buy them lots of nice things, Take them lots of, to lots of fun places, tell them funny jokes, and stick up for them when a teacher or a peer has been unfair to them. And that's how you get your child's heart. But that's wrong. That's not how you get your child's heart. That's how you spoil them, but it's not how you get their heart. What does the Bible say about how to get the heart of your child? Turn to Malachi chapter 4.
Malachi 4. If you don't know how to get there, go to Matthew and then turn left. Malachi 4, verse 4, says this. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And let me just break in and say, this is the last verse of the Old Testament. Right before we're coming in to the time of Christ, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And I believe that's speaking of John the Baptist. Before the, great, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which is Jesus and his work, his death, his resurrection. And what will Jesus do? Here's what it says. He shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. How do you get the heart of your child? The formula that this passage gives us is that it's not something that we do. It's something that he does. He will turn the hearts. And first he'll turn the hearts of the father to their children. He will put a passion in the heart of the father that it matters. My child is an eternal soul. My child could be a warrior for God. It matters what I do. And this father goes out with a passion to raise his child for Christ. And then he will turn, he, Jesus, will turn the hearts of the children to the father. A father that is dedicated to God. A father that is seeking for the spiritual well-being of his family. And that child sees that. That child senses the love that his father has. And the heart of the child will be turned to the father. Now, you say it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I understand but I'm just telling you what Scripture says here. And I do want to add a surefire way to lose the heart of your child and also something that is vital if you're going to keep it. How do you lose the heart of your child? I put four things. Anger, abuse, criticism, and neglect. You want to lose the heart of your child? Write those four things down. Anger, abuse, criticism, and neglect. Fathers especially. As a fellow father that sometimes gets frustrated, listen to me. These things will destroy your relationship with your child. This past summer, my family was at family week up at SMBI, and there was a brother there. He was not from an Anabaptist background. But we were in a class, it was a men's class, and we were speaking about, I don't know, child training or, or families or something. I don't remember exactly what. But this thing of, of anger was being talked about. And this brother stood up and he said something to this effect. He said, anger is so destructive. And, and before I finish, and I, I, think, I think you know what I'm talking about here. As fathers, we get frustrated sometimes. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to respond in anger. And, and, and I see this in men that I admire. And they'll admit it. I struggle with anger with my children. 
But here's what he said. He said, anger is so destructive. If you have young children and you struggle with anger, get control of it fast. And I would echo that sentiment. Get control of it fast. It is so destructive. We could talk a lot more about abuse and criticism and neglect. But these things are so destructive. How do you keep the heart of your child? Praise and affirmation are so important. It's not the only keys, but it's so important. Praise and affirmation. Most children thrive on affirmation from their parents. Val Yoder said, I heard him say one time, well, before I say that, we all have to rebuke our children, right? I do. Sometimes it seems that all, all I do is say no and stop and things like that. We all have to rebuke our children. But Val Yoder said that the formula for rebuke is E6R. E6R. Six parts of encouragement to every one part of rebuke. Now, you may be thinking, you don't understand my child. My child don't do six good things every bad thing he does. I understand, but understand the point. I heard another preacher say, ten to one. Ten parts of encouragement to every part of rebuke. Think about it. If you would constantly be praising Johnny, good job, Johnny. I like that picture you drew. Hey, you got an 87 on your quiz. You're coming up, you know, and on and on. And then one day you have to say, Johnny, you're not responding to your mother the way you should. It's so much different. Look for ways to praise your children. I have to tell you, and I can tell you this in the presence of my dad. I'm 35 years old, and I still get a fuzzy feeling when my dad praises me. I remember I, I was a teenager, I'm pretty sure, probably a pretty young teenager, and I was mowing hay, and I got done, and dad told me, hey, you did a really nice job on that field. And I still think about that today when I'm mowing hay. I don't want to miss things, because I want dad to be pleased. <laughs> now, you're going to think that he's some evil taskmaster that never praised me. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. And yet, children thrive on hearing their father say, good job, son. Good job. Keep it up. You're doing a good job. Something else I want to mention, so important, pray for your children. Pray for your children. Some time ago, actually not too long ago, we went to visit my grandma. And in our conversation, we were talking about families and, and some of her children did not turn out the way she, she would have liked. And so I asked her, I said, if you could start over, what would you do differently? And her answer surprised me. She thought a little bit. And then she said, I would spend more time praying for my children. Recently as well, I was talking to a father, very different stage of life. His children were 
just coming to the age where they were getting married, they were leaving home. And I asked him the same question. If you could do it again, what would you do different? His answer was the same. I would pray for my children more. Our children have been entrusted to us from God. He's rooting for us. He wants them to succeed. We screw it up sometimes. It's only by his grace, only by his power, only by his wisdom, only by his mercy that we can raise up children to follow him. He's on our side. Let's rely on him. Let's seek him to lead his people well. Pray for your children. Now I want to close with an example of a man and his family that we know almost nothing about. But the little we know about this man and his family makes me want for my family what he had. That man is a man named Stephanus. We find the story of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. Paul writes this about Stephanus. He says, I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's about all we know about Stephanus and his family. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the, saints, of the saints. Now, I don't know how many of you here have ever struggled with addictions. I'm sure there's some of you here that know firsthand what an addiction is. And I don't know exactly what it looks like to be addicted to the ministry of the saints. But this one thing I know, this man and his family were hooked on serving the kingdom of God. They were hooked. They couldn't get away from it. And I can just imagine what their conversations were like around the supper table. And what they talked about as they went about their work. And when they got their paycheck in, what they talked about, what are we going to do with this? They were addicted to the ministry of the saints. That's what they thrived on. That's what fueled their fire. That's what got them up in the morning. Building the kingdom of God. Oh, that this could be said of more of our families, of my family. Think of how our churches, our schools, our missions would thrive if this could be said of every young family here this evening. This family is addicted to serving God. That's what they thrive on. That's what gets them up in the morning. That's what they're passionate about. Fathers, mothers, we have a tremendous God-ordained responsibility to raise our children for the kingdom of God. But we only have a brief opportunity to do it. A vapor that was talked about this morning. Let's point our children to Jesus Christ. God bless you. It's been a pleasure to be with you this weekend. I trust that God's word has challenged you as it has challenged me. We have this moment. Let's be done with lesser things.
And let's rally our families together and go forth and serve our king. That king that brought us forth out of Egypt and is taking us to Canaan. Let's serve that king. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Shall we have a song?